believe if I've counted right, we've got two more classes counting this one. So we got a lot of today and uh, two more classes on the end of the book of Job. And so I wish we had three quarters to deal with Job, but we don't. So here it is. This is what we're going to deal with today. Chapters 32 through 37, all in one shot, hopefully. And look at the unique exception of the book of Job. Now, after you get to the first 31 chapters of Job, whether you're reading it, teaching the class, or sitting in the class, you're kind of ready for God to hurry up and speak and everything be open. It's been a long, winding road. And just when you think God will speak at the end of chapter 31 where it says the words of Job have ended, in keeping with this book where there have been a lot of twists, a lot of turns, a lot of unexpected things, there's one more unexpected thing that happens, and it is that God doesn't speak, but some, at this up to this point in the book, unknown young man stands up, and it's introduced into the book. So if you go back in your mind to where the book started, you've got Job at the beginning, Mrs. Job in Job chapter 2, 9, and 10, Job's three friends, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar in Job 2, 11 through 13, and that's about all that you know that are present in this book, and then all of a sudden, a man who we heard nothing about, his name's not mentioned anywhere else in the book, pops up and gives the longest uninterrupted speech in the whole book, chapters 32 through 37. And so because this is so, you might say, unexpected, such a surprise, people tend to do deal with these speeches by the young man named Elihu in several different ways. And we'll talk about the way people handle the speeches, and then I'll give you what I think is the best way to handle them, and then we'll briefly walk through what he said. So option number one. Some people say that these speeches are not original to the book. So they come to Job 32 through 37, and they're like, well, Elihu wasn't here all this time. How does he all of a sudden pop on the scene? Some redactor or editor of the book of Job came in later and just added Job 32 through 37. So you might be reading the study Bible one day or pull a Job commentary out and read those words. Of course, the problem with that theory is we don't have any copies of the book of Job in any language without the Elihu speeches. And so nobody knows of a time when these weren't a part of the book. They are a part of the book, even though they kind of trouble us and give us some questions. Number two, some people say Elihu is a young man who is just here to fill space. Don't really take his speeches seriously. He just says some foolish things. That's why God, Job, nor the friends comment on anything that he says. He just kind of overlooked. When God shows up at the end, he'll say some things about Job. He'll say some things about the three friends, but nothing about Elihu. In fact, one commentator says, Elihu was a pompous buffoon who provides comic relief to the tension of the plot. So he's just here to make you laugh. He says some foolish things. Ignore what he says. But I think this is problematic and erroneous for some reason I'll show in a minute. Two more views. So number one, it was added in later. Number two, like he was here just for comic relief. Here's number three, and there are a lot of people that believe this about his speeches, um, that he says was perfect for the occasion. And that Elihu up to this point gives the best speeches in the book, and that's why God doesn't critique him or say anything about his speeches. Besides Job and the friends, he has the best things to say. A lot of what he says parallels what God's going to say later on. And so if you really want to get to the heart of what we should be saying to Job's in our lives and to people like Job, look at what Elihu has to say. And I'll say on this third view that Elihu gets a lot of stuff right, especially his last speech. He says a lot of things that God's going to say when he shows up, but I think he still has some problems. And I don't think he delivers what he promises. When he shows up, he says initially, I'm going to say some things that nobody else has said. Well, six chapters later, you're like, not really. We've heard some of this before. And here's the last one. Others say Elihu comes on the scene and promises to do something different, improve on what others have said, but he really doesn't. He's just like the friends. He falsely accuses Job and does a terrible job of adding anything new 
to the conversation. And I'm kind of partial to that last one. So I think if you mix three and four together, Elihu says some good things that we can appreciate, but then on the other hand, he really doesn't add anything special or new. He is a lot like the friends. And so if you put those two things together, I think we should appreciate what he says. Go ahead and look at with me. I'm going to read the first four verses of Job chapter 32, or the first five. So these three men, now this isn't him speaking yet. This is the inspired narrator just kind of telling you what's going on. It says, so these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barthel, the Uzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at the three friends because they found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. So I think we need to take his speeches seriously for several reasons. Number one, he's the only person in the whole book who's introduced with the genealogy. Whenever you read in the Bible and somebody says, hey, this person is the son of this person, it's drawn attention to, one, this person really existed, and two, there's something unique and special about them. So the idea that he's just the comic relief buffoon that we should ignore couldn't be true. There's a genealogy here to say some things about him. Second, though, Job and his friends have this back and forth. They say something, Job says something. Job says something, they say something. Nobody interrupts a lot of you. Maybe they're all out of breath by this point. Maybe everybody's <laughs> gone home. I don't know. But nobody interrupts him, and God doesn't critique his speech. And so I think he does get some things right that we should appreciate. He seems, at least initially, to have spoken or listened carefully, and then he introduces his, his speeches. All right, so 32 through 37 is his speech. We won't get into it on a verse-by-verse -verse basis, but we'll break it up into, I believe, five or six sections. Based on what we just read, the first five verses that introduce us to Elihu, if you were there, you see this young man, he gets up to speak. Read it again. You can read it to yourself silently. Let me ask you this. Why was he mad at the friends in verse 3? Why is Elihu mad at the friends? It says he burned with anger against Job's friends. For what reason? They condemned Job, but they didn't have an answer for him. Okay, so they said a lot of stuff, but what? Couldn't prove it. They couldn't prove what they said. Was he right to be mad at them for that? Shake or not, yes, right? All right. Why was he mad at Job in verse 2? And was he right about that? He burned with anger at Job. Why? Job justified himself rather than God. Is he right about that with Job? Nobody. Nobody. We don't want to be alive if we don't want to say anything foolish. Okay. Yeah, I think somewhat yes and no, right? So he's wrong. Based on his behavior, you see he has some some different characteristics describing him in verses 3 through 5. If you were here and you were talking to Elihu, you've heard the others speak, Elihu speaks, you've got this background about him in the first five verses, what might be some things that you would warn him about before he speaks? What might be some things that you would say, based on his disposition in the first five verses, Elihu, be careful about X, be careful about this. What would you warn him about based on what you see in these first five verses? Sam, what? Be careful not to say things you don't know. Right? And so he says he's listening carefully. Don't start making accusations that you can't prove that you don't know. That would be one thing to warn him about. What else? Watch your temper. Watch your temper. What does the Bible say in Ephesians 4.26? You know this verse. Be angry and what? Sin not. People always quote that verse. And whenever they quote it, they mean to say like, I've got a right to be angry. The Bible says be angry, just don't what? But here's the question. How good are you at that? <laughs> I mean, people are like, well, I got God's right to be angry as long as I don't sin. I failed that test so many times that I think Paul's saying more than we give him credit for. 
Very few people, according to James 1 and verse 20, get angry and say, oh, I'm so angry I could do the will of God. James says, <laughs> James says, hey, wait a minute. He's swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. But the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. People rarely get angry and say, well, let me just go out and obey some Bible passages. I would say to this guy, even though he has a right to be angry, at least so it seems, be careful, Elijah, that you don't become like what you condemn. In your anger, you may very well fall into sin. Don't say things you don't know. Watch your anger. What else? You don't know that all these things that have happened uh, were God's doings. Don't start blaming God. You don't know. Be careful what you say about God and how you're going to represent God. Yep. Watch your what? Watch your tone. Yeah. I would, and I would put with that, Kevin, watch your tone. Watch your pride. It says at some point he had waited to speak because the other friends. Sometimes um, it seems like Elihu may be in this camp, and we can find ourselves in this camp with people suffering and with a lot of things in life. Well, nobody else could figure it out, so let me come on the scene, and I'm going to show you how it's done. Right? And so you guys couldn't figure it out. This is sort of complex, but I'm, gonna, I'm the guru. I'm going to teach everybody what they don't know. And pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before what? Paul would say, Elihu, you've listened well. That's great. You've got some things to add to the conversation. But be careful about pride. Um, sometimes we don't have to speak. I would say, man, you've held it in this long. Do you really have something new to add? I would say be careful. Silence really can be golden, right? And sometimes we think we have to speak, but we don't. Here's another thing. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Elihu is a young man, but um, maybe he does have something to add, and we should appreciate that maybe... He could help if he were to be wise in what he says. Okay, the first speech goes from verse 6 down through verse 22 in Job 32. And what Elihu says is, hey, this is his right to speak. He goes into this idea of he should be able to speak. Look at verse 6. Elihu, the son of Barthel, the Buzai, answered and said, I'm young in years. You are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But it is in the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It's not the old who are wise, nor the age who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me and let me also declare my opinion. So Elijah starts out and he says he didn't speak first. Why? He said they were respectful. When Eliphaz rebuked Job in Job 15.10, he said, we're older than your dad, Job. So the guys that came to rebuke Job were old. Job has kids. He's pretty old. Ten children. Elihu says, the reason why I let you all go first is because you're older. But as I listened, I figured out, one, you all don't really know everything. And two, well, wisdom doesn't really come to you just because you're old. God's the one that doles out wisdom. And so, hey, if you guys can say some stuff, I can say some stuff. Um, is it true that, well, let me ask you, let me ask you this. Is he right about this? That though he's young, he can possess wisdom too, just like the older man. Yes, that's right. Can young people possess wisdom on an occasion, sometimes more than people that are older than them? And if you say yes, they can, how? How do they get it? Because why do we assume in the first place, and why does a lot of you assume that, hey, I thought you guys would get it right because you're older. Why do we assume that older people are sometimes wiser? Experience. Experience, is correct. All right, and so if that's the case, how can it be true that sometimes younger people can be wiser than older people? Experiences, they've learned different things. You can learn from others' wrongdoings. You can learn learn from others' wrongdoing, yeah. What else? Open minded developed the bias. Stephen? Open minded. Open minded. Dave? They haven't developed a bias. They haven't developed a bias. Sometimes that can be helpful. 
You can, do, you can do the wrong thing a thousand times. And you're really experienced at that. Yeah. Does it mean that you? That's right. <laughs> I mean, I jump in the dumpster and it stinks, right? And then if he sees the skunk chasing you, he's like, I'm not gonna do that. I'm wise, right? You can be. I would say the quickest way to short circuit this, though, without any experience, without any bias, without any human perspective whatsoever, young people can be wiser than older people if they read the oldest book. So in Psalm 119, go to Psalm 119 and notice what the psalmist says about how he advanced in wisdom and what it really takes. It's in Psalm 119, in that section that begins in verse 97, Oh, how I love your law, it's my meditation all the day. And then he says in verse 98, Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it's with me forever. Verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why? Your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age because I do what? Keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. And then he talks about how sweet the word is to his taste and how sweet it is to his lips. Spending enough time with the Bible. You can be a person that's 85, 90 years old, never read the Bible, never hearkened to the things of God. And a 25-year-old who has immersed themselves in the eternal book can really speed passing a person in wisdom and knowledge based on not what they know or even what they've experienced at all, but the one that knows everything. Elihu is right when he says, by the way, true wisdom resides with God, and if I get close to him, I'll know what I need to know. Okay, let me let me say a few words. <laughs> I think to the best of our ability, though, when we talk about younger people and older people, we should, to the best of our ability, congregationally and really in our world, try to crucify this division that seems to sometimes exist between the various generations. Older people think the young people are ruining the world. Young people think older people don't have a clue. And there's just this clashing that often takes place, right? And everybody thinks their generation has it right and they're the best. And I just feel like, well, there can be wisdom had in all generations so long as we hearken to God's word and do things the way that God would have us. He begs to be listened to. Look at verse 10. 32.10, he says... Therefore, listen to me and let me declare my opinion. He is frustrated that Job has left everything. Um, he's frustrated that they left Job alone and have not spoken up to him. In verses 15 through 22, he shows he's passionate about what he's going to say. He will not show favoritism or flatter because they're older. In verse 21 and 22, I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. And so Elihu over and over again says, listen to me, I've got something to say. I want God to hear me. Do you sense any arrogance on his part? Right? He really has things figured out. He's really going to contribute something to um, the conversation. One thing Elihu may be forgetting as the speeches have gone out, and we might forget this when we show up late to somebody's suffering, is how much Job has suffered. So he's heard the speeches, he's heard the dialogue, and if he's not careful, he comes on this scene with his philosophical view and all the things he's going to bring to life. But this is a real man who has suffered terribly, and though it seems we're 30 chapters removed from it, the sting in Job's life is just as real as it was the day he had those 10 funerals. And so Elihu is passionate, he's angry at Job, he's angry at the friends, and he may be forgetting, hey, this is a real man with real feelings, real family, and real flocks that he's lost, and appreciate that great reality. Well, Elihu just wants to say his piece and get on with things because he wants to set everybody straight. Um, anyway, if you were in Elihu's shoes and you didn't know about the first two chapters of the book and you felt you had to say something, what would you have said? Because I think that's his challenge, to say something different than the friends. What would you say to Job? If you were in Elihu's shoes, you've heard the speeches of the friends, you know nothing about chapters one and two, what would you say?
That probably would be a good answer. Probably a good answer. What about um, I'm here for you, Joe? Right? Or I'm sorry, all of this is taking place. Or hang in there, Joe. Rescue and relief will probably one day come with God's help. Just hang in there. Elihu says none of that. Instead, notice chapter 33. He starts to rebuke Job. He starts in on Job. Notice the first seven verses. But now hear my speech, O Job. Listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth. The tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart. What my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. What stands out in the first seven verses about Elihu's speech? Talks about himself a lot. He's really into himself. Yeah, he's proud of Elihu, right? Look at verse one. Hear my speech. Listen to my words. I will open my mouth. Verse three. My words. My lips. Um, Elihu has a lot to say about himself. You know, some people have a unique ability. They might even think it's a talent to make every conversation about them. <laughs> You're suffering, they show up, and they're like, oh, I've suffered more. One time my dog died too, and everything's always about them. They always turn it into them. They're the hero of all their illustrations, all their stories about how they rescue people, and everything automatically points to them. He's supposed to speak words of comfort to Job, but in the end, it kind of seems like a parade about how smart and bright and brilliant Elihu is. Whatever else can be said about him is, we can say this, he's pretty proud of himself. He attacks Job's claim to be innocent in verse 8 through 11 in chapter 33. Notice there he says, Surely you have spoken in my ears. I've heard the sound of your words. You say I'm pure without transgression. I'm clean. There's no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemies. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. He claims Job is not innocent and upright. In verse 11 and verse 12, verse 12 he says, Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. And so... Is Job right about his righteousness? Yeah, Job has been innocent. Elihu is mistaken about the kind of man that Job is. But I do think he's correct for saying that Job is not right to demand answers of God. Look at verse 12 down through verse 18. Behold, in this you are not right, I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. And a dream and a vision of the night when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds. Then he opens the ears of man and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed, conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. And so Elihu wants to call Job out for saying, hey, God needs to answer me. God doesn't do anything about the wrong in the world. And Elihu says, Job, you've kind of overstepped your bounds. And I believe he's right about that. Um, Job has said God has been silent and does not speak, but Elihu says God does speak. How does he speak? Notice what Elihu says God uses as his language. In verses, really starting in verse 22, he says his soul draws near to the pit, his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I found the ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with you. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God. He accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy. He restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I have sinned, perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. He says God speaks to people in suffering. Now, that's not Job's scenario. People suffer for a lot of reasons. Job is not needing to be awakened by God through suffering. But Elihu is right that sometimes the way that God speaks to people is through their suffering. Do you know anybody and you think to yourself, 
this person. Show of hands, if you think you know somebody that you would say, you know what, I don't know everything, but I'm persuaded that this person may not wake up to spiritual realities until they hit rock bottom. You know people that just say their life's just going too good. Things are going their way. And so long as that's the case, I just don't know if this person's ever going to be tuned in to righteousness and purity. And it's because sometimes people, they don't have an interest in God until they break down. This person, sometimes we say about people, this person wasn't interested in God until what? Until bad things happen. And so God can use suffering. Why is that true? Why is it true that sometimes God does have to speak to people through suffering and they don't want to hear him at any other time? Elijah says, Job, you say God doesn't talk to people when they're going through hardship, but sometimes it's the very hardship that is the language that God speaks to people. Why is it the case that people sometimes don't have any interest in God or in things divine until they hit rock bottom? Why is it the case, Neil was preaching about this morning, the day of the Lord and the need to be ready and all of the signs and all the warnings and all the long suffering that God's extended to us. Why is it that most people, a lot of people at least, ignore all of that until they hit rock bottom and then they're like, let me have a preacher. Hey, let me talk to this person. I'm suffering. I've got some diagnosis, whatever the case may be. Why does it take that? Why can't it be for everybody in the world for the most part? In days of prosperity, they just look up and say, well, God's been good to me. Limbs are working, sun's shining, healthy family. Okay, I render due to the one who gave me all this stuff. Why does it take the negative and the bad? They count on themselves. They depend on themselves. Don't think they need anything else. We depend on ourselves. We don't think we need anybody else. We're self-sufficient. You think you've got plenty of time. Sometimes they also think they've done it themselves. They've arrived because of what they did, their talents, their skills, their everything, and they don't see God in that. We're industrious. We work. We work hard. We're smart people. I put in the work, right? I've been here. I've, I've done all this on my own, and we can be fooled into thinking, well, I don't need God. Why else do people have to hit rock bottom before they'll look up and see, hey, here is God. I need His help. Sometimes through suffering, you can't find help or solution through any other avenue or person. Sometimes you realize some things are beyond human ability to help you, and you need divine aid, and you realize you probably have needed it all along. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says, The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. Now, Aaron and Sam both have this property. The deeper they are, the less their victims expects their existence. They are masked evil. Pain is unmasked, unmistakably evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. We can rest contentedly in our sins, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Lewis says, in the end, God can talk to us through pleasure, the sun, the moon. Yes, the heavens declare the glory of God, but the suffering declares the need for God. When people start suffering, God's like, can I have some of your attention now? Can I have some of your time now? And all of a sudden, people that formerly weren't interested in spiritual things, now they want to talk about eternal things. Now they want to talk about the Bible. God doesn't want that to get to that point, but if it does, he'll gladly accept our response in that hour because whatever it takes, that's how bad and desperately he wants us to be saved. And maybe it was a few Sunday nights ago, Neil was preaching about people that are lost in our lives. Well, during the Q&A, he talked about in prayer that sometimes we need to pray those dangerous prayers, that God would do whatever it takes to bring people we love to either their first knowledge of the Lord or to bring him back. Do whatever it takes, but spare their lives so that they can awaken to the true sensibilities of things that ultimately matter. And that's what we sometimes need. So in chapter 33, I'm, ex- I'm okay with the life you speak here except for one thing. Um, did God need to get Job's attention through pain and suffering? 
No. Job's in a unique category. Sometimes people suffer because of their sins. Did Job have sin? No. Sometimes people suffer because God says, hey, you're, you lack something spiritually. And through this suffering, James 1, 2 through 4, God's going to help that come about. Like getting the tube out of the toothpaste, you can only get the goods out through pressing down on it, squeezing it. And you've got things in you that I need to get out of you. And sometimes God uses suffering to do that. Did Job need that, though? So Job's in what I would call a special third category of sometimes, at least in this life, so far as we can tell as humans, this unexplained suffering that we can't account for. And we've got to learn how to deal with that. Because sometimes we want to try to plug people into one of those accounts. I'm not saying Job had nothing to learn from this. In 42, Job's going to say, okay, now I see you. He learned some things. But this suffering, whether we know it or not, was not to grow Job. Job had no need to grow so far as I can tell in Job chapter 1. This is some one part of living in a fallen world. And sometimes there's just unexplained suffering that people go through. And to try to pinpoint that perhaps they have a deficiency and that God is trying to grow them. Job was asking for that the whole time. If there is a place where I'm deficient, would God tell me so that I can learn the lesson he wants me to learn? Job didn't have a sin problem. Job didn't really have a spiritual growth problem. I'm not telling you Job was perfect. Job says as much as himself throughout the book. But Job suffers, of course, we know chapter 1 and 2, to vindicate God and prove that he was serving God for no reason just because he was God. And we know people like that. So Elihu is right. God speaks to people through suffering. But Job's suffering wasn't to get Job's attention because guess what? God already had it. All right, look at Job 34. He says that... Um, God is just. That's his main argument. Elihu used in Job chapter 34. He said he was going to be on Job's side. That's at the end. In Job 33, 32, and 33, he says, If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me and be silent, and I will teach you. So he says he's on Job's side. And then he launches into speeches and starts to accuse Job of being arrogant and ungodly. He takes Job's words out of context. Now he's using them against Job. Look at 34, 1 through 9. Hear my words, you wise men. Give ear to me. You, you who know, for the ear test words as the palate tastes food, let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I'm in the right. God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I'm counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I'm without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers, who walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Now he said, hey, Job, I'm on your side. I'm going to defend you. Job, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. Elihu, when he started out, he said he listened carefully, and now he's going to give his speech. Had he listened carefully? Okay, let me ask you this. What makes a good listener? How do you know if somebody's a good listener? What does it take to be a good listener? At all times, people need us to listen to them well, but what about when people are suffering especially? What does it take? How do you know, okay, this person's a good listener? Sometimes we're loading up, right? They're talking, we're just loading bullets. We're not really listening. We're just like listening so that we can respond to them. So Mary Lois is right. She says, don't interrupt people. I'm a preacher. That's hard. We've got a lot to say, or at least we think we do, right? And we're ready to jump in when somebody says something, but we need to listen. Kevin says, if they're not immediately ready to respond, you know they've been listening well because they're trying to make sure that they let you finish what you're saying. What else? They can reflect that they heard what you said and they can tell you in their response what they what you have said. Yeah. So they accurately reflect. You know, Elihu doesn't ask Job any questions. He just comes out with accusations. 
and good listeners, they make sure that they've heard you right. Here are a few things I wrote down. Do not listen to respond, just listen. It's extremely hard, but it's essential. When you're talking to somebody and you want to make sure you're listening well, ask them if they're done speaking. You finished? Is that it? You've got anything more to say? Make sure that they're done and they've opened up the door for you to speak. Repeat things back to make sure that you're right. When I worked in fast food, we always had to do this. And when we didn't do it, we always messed up the order. I know you're ready to drive up and give your money, but they're doing that because they want to make sure they got the order right. When we talk to people, repeat it back to them and say, now, am I right? Did you say this? Did I get you right? Did you say that? It'll help us, not only with suffering, but even when we're in like doctrinal conversations with people, sometimes we'll say, well, I know y'all believe this, and we should ask people instead. Now, am I right? You believe that people are born in sin? Now, you believe people have to be baptized, right? But you're saying they don't. It doesn't matter if they are or not. Ask them. You'll be surprised what they think. Don't just throw people in a group and say, well, I know what y'all believe. If we're going to listen well, repeat it back and make sure we hear them. Ask to be corrected if you've misrepresented anything or gotten anything mixed up. Tell them right now, look, I'm going to say some things. If I've gotten you wrong, if I've mixed up anything you've said, would you make sure to point it out to me? This is important in a lot of areas. I can think of one especially, but just make sure that you get this right and you say, if I'm inconsistent or if I misrepresented you, let me know. And then give your undivided attention. Really lock in with people and listen. Elijah didn't do that. He starts defending God. He defends God as one who never does wrong. That's right. He defends God as being totally in control, but I don't know if he gets this right. In verses 10 through 15, he says some things about God, but you know, it's possible to stand up for God and do it in the wrong way. Sometimes people really want to make God look good, but they make him look bad because they do it wrong. And I think we live in a world where sometimes that takes place, especially on social media. Somebody says, well, I'm standing up for the truth. I'm doing this. And I'm thinking, you're standing up for God in a way that God would never stand up for God. That's it. That's the wrong way to go about it. Elihu's passionate. He really wants to defend God's justice and righteousness. But sometimes people that are ready to do that most passionately are the people that basically get things wrong. Okay, let's fast forward to chapter 35. He rebukes Job again. Um, his speech starts to come off the rails at this point. Um, we don't have time to dig into everything he says, but in verses 4 through 8, he says Job is in it for himself and serves God for his own benefit. What does that sound like? Job's only serving God because it pays. Yeah, that's what the adversary says, and that's pretty much what a lot of you says here. He says God does not have to answer the human pleas for justice and vindication in verses 9 through 16. But here's what I want to know. Why does Job really want to hear from God anyway? What does Job want to know? Why? 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 What am I suffering for? So he said, hey, God didn't have to answer you. Yeah, that's right. But Job's not asking for an answer for his own selfish reasons. Job is broken and busted, and he wants to know, what have I done? Furthermore, can we have our friendship back? He needs to hear God say, we never lost it, Job. And so Elihu misunderstands this. Um, what do we mean when we say somebody has the gift of gab? What does that mean? I don't know if it's a gift, by the way. We should probably stop saying that. But what do we mean when we say this person has the gift of gab? They won't shut up. Well, that's a good way to summarize. Yeah. Um, sometimes people just like to hear themselves talk. And they may think that they're pretty good at it, but they go on and on. It sounds good at first, but afterwards you realize um, they've said a lot, but this really doesn't make any sense at all. When I was in the school of preaching in Florida, we would have chapel every day, different students would speak, and Brian, the director, would often get up, and he would say about, he said this about every sermon, and he's one of the most encouraging guys I know, and he had heard so many sermons, so I guess he just always tried to focus on the good. He would get up after guys had spoken and say, um, hey, you know, your sermon was pretty good, except for the packaging. It's like, well, 
what do you mean? That's the whole sermon, right? But his whole point was, hey, you had some good ideas, but you really got to get this organized better. Shave off some stuff, add some things in. You had, you said a bunch of stuff. I mean, a lot of it was true. Maybe you used the wrong verse to apply to this, but it was all good except your packaging. Elihu comes up. He's like, man, I got a lot of good things to say. And he's kind of like all over the place. He says some stuff that's right, but his packaging is just way off. He gets Joe wrong. Chapter 36 down through the end of chapter 37 is his finest hour. He says a lot of things about God's power and about who God is. Chapter 36, 24 through 27, God is great and his work should be extolled. Chapter 36, verse 28, all the way through chapter 37 and verse 13, God's power is amazing. Chapter 37, 14 through 20, he says God knows some things and does some things beyond Job's knowledge. That's true. And that's sort of warming up for God to come up and say a lot of the same things. In fact, a lot who leans on this idea about creation, and God will deal with that a lot in his speeches. He says God's power, knowledge, and justice put him on another level, and he must not be engaged as a mere mortal in chapter 37, 21 through 24. And I think that's right. All right, so here's some takeaways from Elihu's speech. Good listening takes effort. Some good talkers are bad listeners. Ask people close to you how good you are at listening, and then listen for their answer. All right, here's the other thing. Young people are not always wrong, and older people are not always wise. True wisdom belongs to God and to those who seek him at any age and will have it. Do you think you're a good analyzer of people? I think some of us kind of think we read people well. I'm a good judge of character. Anybody ever say that to you? You're a good judge, judge of character. If people say that about you, let me just warn you to be extremely careful and cautious. Because we can start to think we're really good at diagnosing everybody. We know why everybody's done everything. We've got the psychological mastermind to figure out everybody and all they're doing. And just be aware that we don't turn into a lot here where we say, listen to me, I've got this all figured out. Um, we're out of time. I'll run off these last ones. Be aware that we don't have an eye problem in helping others. Most people are not as impressed with you as you are. Don't take yourself too seriously. If you're burning and burning and angry to say something, you should probably fool off first. Angry people really want to do God's will. And that's about it. But thanks for a good class. We're going to stop there. Next week, we'll look at God's first speech, and then we'll look at the last speech in the week that follows. But thanks for a good class this week.